It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Texans entered this weekend in win-or-go-home mode, and they left this weekend champions. We're going to talk about that and more on this edition of the bullpen. Welcome to the bullpen. I am James Roy. This is Tom Chabria, my co-host, and we do a podcast about the 2023 AFC South champion Texans. The, the Texans that have won the AFC South seven times since 2011, which is five more times than any other team in the AFC South. We, we get to talk about a fun team, and the last three years have not been fun, but trust me, the last decade, the last 15 years have been great, and we're right back where we started in 2011 as the Texans, you know, doing great things on the field. And Tom, how does it feel to be here to talk about this matchup between the Texans and the Colts in the, in the past tense uh, on this podcast? I, I just feel like that, that meme with Idris Alba, you know, from the wire, like <laughs> tell the world we're back up because the Texans are back up. Like, like the rebuild we're we're no longer rebuilding. It's playoff mode. The bar is set. This team has has surpassed all expectations, and we get to talk about a playoff game. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I, I hate to do this right before we talk about like the real meat of it and the important stuff, but the Texans' uh, social media team, widely lauded as one of the best social media teams, um, at least in Houston. Um, it's probably them and the Astros. Um, I'd say in the league. But recently, they've had a, a string of posting memes, and... And the concept of stealing a meme from someone since it's public property and a lot of us think alike is, is to me, kind of taboo. But 
they posted that meme that you you just talked about. And I've seen that from every Texans Twitter page over the course of the season, and they posted it. And then they also did a callback to D'Amico Ryans after the Texans won the AFC South the first time. And that was a video that had circulated on other Texans Twitter pages before the Texans Twitter account posted it. And it kind of looks like they screen recorded the video that was around on Twitter. So I I don't know if we really want to talk about that, but it's just an interesting thing to bring up that that that's happening. I, I'm not making any accusations. I don't have I'm not, you know, the judge, jury and executioner there, but interesting observation on Texans Twitter at the moment. I mean, I just feel like everybody feels that way, you know, tell the world we're back up like that. There, there was a moment in time not too long ago, like you talked about all the different championships where the division went through Houston. And then when you look at the the turmoil that the team has went through and the the, the change uh, from the top down to where we are now, I mean, I think the, the, the full circle is complete. You know, we're, we're going to get in this game, but I think the the, the, the backside of that. I think we'll talk a little bit about where the Texans are as a franchise and a team. And it's just the sky's the limit. I I couldn't agree more. Um, there's a reason I started from 2011, and that's because a certain Manning brother was in the division for the first, you know, nine years of its existence, the AFC South. And that didn't quite go well for the Texans. But uh, since 2011, it's been all up. So speaking on... The, the first talking point, which is that this is a primetime game, is the first time the Texans played in the primetime all season. It's the first time C.J. Stroud played in the primetime since he played against Georgia in the primetime in the college football playoff. And there was some people that were uh, mostly other fan bases that were wishy-washy on how he was going to do. I think for the most part, t- Texans fans were pretty sure what of what we have. Um, but how did how does it feel to know that C.J. Stroud is undefeated in primetime football in his NFL career. I really feel like the the, the record was eventually going to be what it was going to be, whether it was yesterday or two years from now. I mean, all the CJ Stroud has shown us all season long and all throughout college is the guy's elite. He just makes big time plays. He elevates his game. I mean, he's just a stud. And this only further cemented that. For all the people that had had trepidations about whether he would be able to play under the bright lights, play in a primetime game, you obviously didn't do your homework because in the college level, the guy was a stud. He was a monster when the lights were the brightest. I mean, that Georgia game will forever live uh, in a lot of people's mind as, as where he came out because that defense was, you know, arguably one of the best college defenses to ever grace a football field. And C.J. Stroud went out there and balled out. So I don't know why anybody would think any differently of of this opportunity for him. I was worried about his health a little bit coming into the game. You know, he was coming off the concussion. I wondered how he'd feel in the pocket with a little bit more pressure that Tennessee could not provide. And uh, he passed the test for me. Yeah, and the Texans held up amazingly. To speak to C.J. Stroud, right, there was a lot of people when he did that against Georgia that said, well, there's an old scouting rule. You know, if it's happened once, it can happen again. Um, And what he showed there showed that he was capable of that. Um, I think there was a lot more film looking back that kind of indicated what C.J. Stroud was in college. I think there's just this, this like hesitancy to like crown someone who's been in like a program like Ohio State, not just because of Ohio State's 
lack of QB history in the NFL, but because of how good Ohio State is at getting talent, you see a guy perform like that with the talent around him, and you go, can he do that without that talent? And, um, I mean, that's I feel like that's like a subtle, uh, I don't know how to say it. I feel like you're underselling Nico Collins and the whole Texans receiving core, really, um, when you when you say that C.J. Stroud's playing without any talent, he does have talent at this level. But I, I do think that there's, the, there's a, a give and take, and that kind of drags into the next point, which is that Nico Collins had 197 receiving yards roundabout. It may, it may have been a yard or two off from that. And a, and a touchdown. Um, I mean, first play of the game, 75 yards for a touchdown. Just, you know, and then several big plays throughout the game that helped out CJ. The discussion around Nico, I think, trends more in the direction of CJ Stroud elevates Nico to what he is. And I think it a lot of times um, takes away from the talent that Nico Collins has. Do you think that it's more CJ, more Nico? Is it, is it, is there a mix there? I, is it absolute? Like, what do you get from Nico Collins' performance this past week? I really feel like Nico Collins is trying to establish himself as the number one that we hoped he could be. A lot of people tend to think that there are wide receivers that elevate quarterbacks, and there are wide receivers that need to be elevated by a quarterback. And for me, when you have a stud, you just kind of see it, right? C.D. Lamb, doesn't matter who's back there, just throw it, he'll go get it. D-Hop back in the day, uh, Jefferson, Chase, uh, Diggs, the list goes on and on and on. The, the, the question for a lot of Texans fans coming into the season and throughout the season was like, is Nico that guy or does, does the Texans need to go out and find a guy? Because clearly C.J. is the dude. And I think... More and more, as, as the season has gone on and you've seen the kind of production that Nico has, has produced, regardless of who was back there, I really feel like he's, he's, he's the number one for me. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the Texans do going into the draft and the free agency to see if they need to address the wide receiver room further. But as far as the alpha, I think it's Nico, and I think this game – just further let you know a play like that, the 75-yard bomb right off the bat. I mean, that just doesn't happen to anybody. I mean, he beat good coverage. He ran a great route. And I think that should speak to Nico's talent more than CJ's talent. I, I So I love Nico, and I don't want to take away from anything he's done. He's been great. Um, I do think that – I don't think it's absolute. I don't think it's like Nico was great and CJ didn't do anything or that CJ 100% made Nico what he is. Um, what I will say is, is that if we look at the case of Stefan Diggs, Stefan Diggs had a turbulent time in Minnesota at quarterback and showed that he could play the position. Um, I like to say independent of quarterback play. You bring up D hop. D hop is my primary example. One of the reasons why I felt Deandre Hopkins was underrated in the wide receiver discussion in the league, even at being ranked top five, but low half of the top five is because of Deandre Hopkins in his prime played with six different quarterbacks and it didn't matter who was throwing him the ball. He, he made quarterbacks that had no business looking good in the NFL look like they were, were at least half decent. He, he made quarterbacks good. And, and so looking and, and you can kind of see that discussion starting to stir up around Joe Burrow when, when they look at, you know, Jamar Chase and T Higgins and like maybe his receiving core is just so good that Joe Burrow has looked good. Um, I'm not of that volition, but that's a discussion that could be had based off of 
what we've seen, I, I think that Joe Burrow has shown enough for us to know that he is a, a good quarterback and a, a, at the elite level, but he has had a lot of help from his receiving core. That being said, to bring this back around to C.J. Stroud, I, I think, or Nico Collins more specifically, um, we have tape of him playing with a lesser quarterback in Davis Mills, and Nico Collins had one game where he had 80 yards or more. He had his first 100-yard receiving game this season. He has consistently produced with C.J. Stroud at quarterback. So I think the real question is, is was Nico Collins being held back by Davis Mills or is Nico Collins dependent on CJ Stroud's talent? And I don't think that it, I, I think it's more on Davis Mills to me. Um, but I think that's where that argument comes from. And that's why I think a lot of people are hesitant to name, you know, crown Nico Collins as wide receiver one is that they, they, that, you know, playing with a different quarterback and not being good and then being good with CJ Stroud in a lot of people's eyes means that CJ made him what he is. And so I'm not going to absolutely say that that's the case, but I see where they're coming from. They're having in our own history as Texans fans, seeing Deandre Hopkins, you know, if, De- if Deandre Hopkins in his early career was playing with Davis Mills, Davis Mills would have looked like a superstar with Deandre Hopkins on the field. He did not look like a superstar with Nico Collins on the field. And so that's all I'll say. I, like I said, love Nico Collins. And I think, I agree with you. He takes away from the need to draft a wide receiver. I think that that discussion will continue and there'll be a lot of fans that'll tell you the Texans should target a wide receiver early and that they still need help at that position. But with Nico Collins and Tank Dell, I think there may be some question of who falls in behind that once some of the veteran guys start leaving. Um, there may be a need to find another veteran each year or in the short term to like fill that wide receiver three slot. But I think the Texans are pretty well set at wide receiver. And I think that Nico Collins really put the exclamation mark on ending that discussion against the Colts with the way that he performed, because there's only so much of that that was CJ. Um, Nico talked about it in the postgame interview. You know, scramble drill is not just CJ scrambling and making more time. It requires something of Nico Collins to be able to to move and and set it up. CJ put the ball up high enough, but Nico put himself in a position to get under it and catch it on that second and 14 with about 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. That was vital to that touchdown drive that put the Texans ahead. But um, going back to CJ's performance, so CJ puts up two touchdown passes and has a a pretty good game. Where are you at on grading CJ's performance in this matchup against the Colts? I think really based on what was at stake, I think when you think about what um, he just overcame with a concussion and and just the different the different level of pass rush that he had to to experience with the Colts. I mean, I, I, it's going to sound a little biased, but I feel like that was it was an A plus for me. When you talk about the all important drive to gain the lead to really separate the game, you know, uh, he was seven for seven for I want to say ninety something yards, and that's not just anything. Like I, I think that's so important with the pressure to. Now you have a tie ball game late in a football game where you have to perform. You have to go and lead your team. He was perfect. And I guess you could nitpick, you know, and say he could have thrown for more yards. I think he threw for like 265 or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but, I mean, he led his team on, on, on a game-winning drive or what ended up being a game-winning drive and got his team out front. I think the the poise he had in the pocket, you know, 
obviously when we talk about the arm talent, it's special, but just to be able to extend plays to give guys like, like you talked about time to do the scramble drill. It's just so elite. It's so rare. There's only a handful of guys in the league that you trust to, to play in, in those environments and succeed. And CJ definitely did that for me. Uh, just a great game by him. And I'm sure there's, he would tell you he could be better, but given the environment, given the circumstances for a win and you're in, I think he performed great. I, I agree with you 100%. A, a plus is, is about where I'm at on CJ's performance. And the big thing to look at is, is that a lot of people, when they look at grading, I think put too much emphasis on the statistics. Two touchdowns and 260-something yards is not something to be mad about considering that the reason that people want like the reason it's a different game for the Texans when CJ Stroud is out there is because of what you said. He's perfect on the drive when he needs to be. He takes care of business. And when, when the, when it comes down to crunch time and the Texans are in a close game, Texans fans don't go, Oh no, we're sending CJ Stroud onto the field and we're down by three with 46 seconds left. What are we going to do? There's no shot, no chance um, or you know, down by four. We need a touchdown from CJ. What are we going to do? No, it's never like that. It's not it, ever since the beginning of the season when we're in a close game and CJ gets the ball. I'm like, oh, for, you know, 40 seconds. That's too much time, you know. And when when you can look at your quarterback on most two minute drill situations and say, oh, that's too much time, or you know, yeah, like I'm watching the clock tick down for the Colts in this game after the Texans had already put up the go ahead touchdown. Fairbairn misses the extra point, um, and I'm watching the Colts get down there. I'm thinking to myself. If they score here, the Texans still have so much time. Like I was, I was not really concerned at that point. I'm glad that it ended on that dropped uh, fourth and one, but I mean that's why it's an A plus performance is because C.J. Stroud has that one step above being able to put up, you know, being able to stat pad in garbage time and put up 400 yards and and five touchdowns. There's a reason why there's still people calling for him to be in the MVP discussion, and that's because when when it matters. Coleridge Bernard Stroud the fourth steps up. I believe it's the fourth. I've only seen the the Roman numeral one time, so I, I could be off on that. I'm pretty sure. Just to clarify, I, I I threw that out there without fully vetting or verifying it. But that being said, I yeah A plus. So in my book, great performance. Um, shifting towards the the Colts. Um, actually, you know what? There's one more thing I want to talk about on the offensive side, which is that I, among other people, um. Understanding that Robert Woods and Noah Brown were going to be out, restarted the, you know, oh, it's, it's time for a Mechie legacy game. Maybe Hutchinson's going to step up and have his start. And we talked about it um, on the podcast. Um, and that obviously didn't happen. Um, and it, it's hard to watch considering how much I really want both of those guys to be good. But, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about it. There's just, they're just not getting separation. I mean, the only way you catch John Mechie open enough to throw him the ball is coming out of the backfield with no one on him. And so that was like pretty much the only play he made all game. What What do you think it is? Do you, do you think that it's a skill issue or do you think that they're just ill fit for the scheme? Honestly, I really feel like these two guys are guys that just have not been ingrained enough in this system, have not got the reps to be able to succeed. The wide receiver position is is notoriously really awkward first, second year. The third year is when you see a lot of guys take that big jump, right? Uh, Nico Collins, no exception. The first couple of years, you didn't even know he was the thing. 
he was on the team, but you just didn't expect him to do anything. I think when you look at Xavier Hutchinson, rookie season, when you look at John Mechie, could arguably be treated as a rookie season. So for these two guys, I mean, everybody sees what Tank Dell does and just assumes, oh, well, anybody can do it. Tank Dell's really special. And when you talk about the other guys, like, I, I, I feel they get unfairly judged because they're compared in the same vein with a Tank Dell. And, and the rapport and the connection that those two have and the work that they put in, I just don't think you, it's it's fair to hold that against John Mechie or Xavier Hutchinson. I still have high hopes for both of them. I still think both of them have plenty of time to be total serviceable wide receivers in this offense. I just don't think they've seen enough of it to be able to really perform at the level. They're going to get other. They're going to get more chances. We don't know the situation with Robert Woods. We don't know Noah Brown's dealing with a back thing. As a guy with low back problems from my military days, I can tell you that is not an easy fix. That is not something that you just, uh, you know what, a little rest, this and that. Like those things are so bad and so weird. So we may be in the same boat, you know, seven days from now. We we, we don't know, or six days from now. I'm sorry. So it's just going to depend on um, what their availability is. And I and I have all the confidence in the world that CJ is going to pull these guys aside and work with them. And you're going to see it. I think I think as as they get to bond and, and go on, you're going to see those guys get better. I think they're going to add to them, and, and it's going to be a great receiving room. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and I spoke to it earlier about where the Texans are at with Nico Collins emerging as a wide receiver one and knowing what you have in Tank Dell, where you kind of look at, like, what's Robert Woods' plan after this contract? Is, you know, what what is Noah Brown thinking of doing? And those are those are bridge guys that give you the time to develop guys like Xavier Hutchinson and guys like John Mechie to where they can get to the point where they become capable of filling in those wide receiver three and four slots. And then those veteran guys have done their jobs. And now the veterans are guys that you trained on the roster to step up and play those positions. So I, I don't think it's time to give up hope on them. Um, I said it in my post on Twitter. I mean, you can call it insanity if you will. It's by definition insanity to continually ask slash expect those two guys to step up and have a game after them showing for all season that that's just not going to happen um or it has not has not happened um but i mean i'm going to keep doing it because at some point it's got to happen in my mind which could be could be classified as insanity but that's just kind of where i'm at so looking forward to the or looking on the other side of the ball if you had told me before this week that Jonathan Taylor was going to rush for 188 yards and a touchdown against this Texans rush defense, which is ranked top five in the league. And you told me that the Texans were going to win that game. I would have called you crazy. I would have called you since we're on the topic insane. That would have been in sheer insanity to believe that the Texans could continue to give up 160 plus rushing yards a game to that guy and not lose to the Colts. So what do you make of the Texans run defense suddenly kind of folding against him? And what do you think was the contributing factor of the Texans being able to overcome what was a a monstrous game from Jonathan Taylor? I look at it in the other way and go, what an amazing performance by the secondary. I think that the Texans brass made a conscious decision to go, okay, we're going to keep them in front of us. We are going to make them march all the way down the field. We are going to bend but don't break. And we're not going to give up explosive plays to these wide receivers. 
who are capable. Pierce had a, a explosive play the week prior. Pittman is a stud. I mean, Mo Alley Cox has, has had some big plays against the Texans in years past. These, these, these were guys that I think D'Amico and crew had decided that they weren't going to let them beat them. And if uh, Jonathan Taylor wanted to go seven, eight, nine yards a pop, he had the one big run. But I mean, it, for the most part, the Texans kept everything else in check. Uh, Gardner Minshew did not have a good day. Like, And I feel like if that's the lesser of the two evils, then so be it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the game plan for the Cleveland Browns, because that's a totally different uh, ball of wax, and uh, they they prevent different problems. But um, I think that that was the Texans' game plan on how to keep or limit the Indianapolis Colts, and I think it worked. Yeah, I I agree with you that a big contributor was kind of letting the run game do its thing and try and prevent those large plays. And to be fair, I the other part of it is is that I feel like the Texans' offense, which has been reliant on uh, explosive plays throughout the season caught fire on that first play of the game and, and matched energy with what Jonathan Taylor was capable of. So Jonathan Taylor had a couple, like you said, you know, eight, nine yards a run, you know, kind of, you know, in that area, there was points where it felt like the Texans kind of shut him down, but he did accumulate a lot of total yards from long runs like that. But outside of that 60 yard run, Jonathan Taylor was kind of like, you know, just a 10 yard pop every once in a while. And it was manageable for the Texans to uh, defense to hold the Colts outside of that, which is why we didn't see the score get larger than it did. Whereas in the past, it felt like Derrick Henry, you know, Derrick Henry, the Derrick Henry 200 yard game. We've talked about that at length, you know, RIP, thank God. Um, The Derrick Henry 200 yard game happens because there's several explosive plays of 20 plus yards, but we didn't really get that from Jonathan Taylor. A lot of those yards were put up on a single run, and, you know, like you said, his high volume of carries, but he had a high average on his runs. And so um, I think what really helped the Texans combat, combat it was limiting the explosiveness of the runs past the point of like, you know, that one and then matching it with their own, you know, offense, putting up those explosive plays and getting themselves in position to match pace with the Colts. So I, I do think it was frustrating to watch, but. I agree with you that it was probably the right call defensively because imagine you shut down Jonathan Taylor, but Gardner Minshew shreds your your secondary for you know two or three hundred yards like we've seen in past games from I I don't want to say subpar quarterbacks, but there's a certain tier of of backup quarterbacks that you wouldn't expect to be starting in the NFL much longer that have just given the Texans a a run for their money through the air, and we didn't see that from Gardner Minshew and. That I think that was huge in terms of making sure that the Texans could win this game. And so, excuse me, uh, looking at this Colts offense, there's one other thing we have to talk about. I alluded to it earlier, which is that on fourth and one game on the line, Jonathan Taylor has to this point been reliable for a nine yard pop just about every three or four runs. And then you you go in and you don't do that now i want to hear your opinion first because i've got my opinion but you pull jonathan taylor from the game and you run a play like from the game entirely not only you don't leave him on the field as a decoy to like run to or like make the texans think he could do anything literally you pull jonathan taylor from the game and this is on steichen the head coach he's offensive play caller pulls him from the game 
on fourth and one for the game, and then they fail to convert. What What are your thoughts on that play? I think it's absolutely horrible, and it has bared out more times than we care to talk about because every time a coordinator tries to get too cute, every time, I mean, I think back to Pete Carroll, not running with Marshawn Lynch, like you, you, you take the ball and you, and you go, I have to be able to get one yard. And the Texans are guilty of it too. They've done it too. And if you do not trust these guys to get one yard, then you've got a, then you got a huge problem, especially when they've just ran and ran and ran and ran and, and they were successful. So why on earth would you try to get cute? I, I understand the people that say, well, it was there and he just has to catch it and I just have to throw it and blah, 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 blah. It's, it's risk that you didn't have to take. You took a guy that had not seen the ball all day and put the game on the line in his hands. And it's like, I'm a big, you, you, you ride with the horse that brought you or however the saying goes. And they didn't do that. I, I mean, I would have felt better if they'd have thrown it to Pittman. I would have felt better if they'd have thrown it to Moss. You know, these are your playmakers. These are your guys that have been so key in getting to you to this point. And, and they did the awesome, I mean, the Colts did the awesome thing. I mean, they went out and said, look, it's not on him. You know, we've ran this play a hundred times. We've done all the things like, like they did a really good job of protecting a player that just could have got absolutely cooked. Uh, 100%. Yeah, I agree. And, um, even he was up there going, look, I got to catch it. It hit my hands. You know, they said all the right things, but I just think Shane Steichen's got to be better. I, I, you totally, you, the, the narrative is totally different if, Taylor gets stopped. And then you just go, well, the Texans were just better. This will always feel like for the Colts, like a what should have been, what could have been, because they did not go to one of their playmakers that have led them all season long. And they trusted their third string running back or their their third running back to make a play. And I even saw somebody come out and say like, oh, this is what they do. You know, they run these plays like this all the time. I understand, but eventually it's going to bite you. And I think in this case it did. No, yeah. I mean, I think that um, my big – you covered a lot of the points I want to talk about, right? First thought on my mind is like Pete Carroll not handing the ball to Marshawn Lynch. And that's still a topic of contention. And it's the same thing that you talked about right there at the end where, uh, you know, if they hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch and he doesn't get the, the touchdown, then like they go, oh, well, he made the right call. The Patriots were just better. But Russell Wilson throwing a pick on the goal line against the Patriots there is just like all Seahawks fans, everyone that is a fan of the game is asking for the rest of time, what if he had handed it to Marshawn Lynch? And so that's the big thing is, is not utilizing your talent. Now, my only issue, right, I, what I will say is this. I think personally that it was a great play call. The play call was great. And I think that, like you mentioned, you know, their RB2 literally was RB1 for the first five weeks of the season, five or six weeks. And having had him on a couple of my fantasy teams, he performed pretty well. And he also performed pretty well against the Texans. He had the, on the carries he got, it wasn't like we were getting a significant downgrade when Jonathan Taylor was off the field. Um, granted, Jonathan Taylor was much better, but to not at least leave Moss in there to, to receive that pass, I mean, yeah, I mean, like you said, you get a little too cute. It's the personnel decision for me. The play call, great. I I think that that 
decision from Shane Steichen makes sense. What doesn't make sense is pulling your most talented player from the entire game. Like, let leave him in and use him as a decoy. I don't know. And, I mean, I said it right after the game. I, I said that um, it wasn't very coach of the year to me. To That decision, to me, was what knocked him out of that discussion. Um, there are a lot of people that will tell you Kevin Stefanski, who we face next week, um, is the front runner in the coach of the year discussion. And, you know, uh, it's been the, the phrase that's been thrown a lot is, is the job's not done. Um, part of the job is not winning coach of the year. Um, never has been the job is to win the Super Bowl. but I like D'Amico Ryan's odds of winning coach of the year a lot better now that he's had a direct matchup with Shane Steichen for all the marbles and has come out on top. So, um, looking at this Texans defense, uh, just briefly to kind of preview looking ahead, what part of it do you think stood out in this matchup that could potentially be key next week in the playoffs? For me, it's secondary. The secondary looked phenomenal. Uh, Derek Singley Jr. looked phenomenal. He made a couple amazing plays where he just broke on a tight end up the seam. Uh, that was a huge play for me. There was there was a, a couple different uh, deep balls that, that, that they covered really well. I just really felt like the secondary was really uh, synced up together. I thought Jalen Petrie had a good game. I think these guys, especially in the way two weeks ago, the way Cleveland just dismantled the Texans secondary, I think it was very important for the secondary to have a huge game going into a game with them, knowing that Amari Cooper and all those guys are there. And uh, I think that's where those guys need to build off of this game going into that. Uh, I, I thought there was there was decent pass rush, not great. Really hoping that we get some positive news on the injury front there. Uh just have to see, but for me, it's the secondary. The secondary had a really good day, I think, and I think they're going to have to have a really good day if the Texans have a chance to win this coming Saturday. The secondary is going to be huge. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, for those listening, this is a Monday show, but on Friday we're going to preview the Texans-Browns matchup, and I have a discussion point involving the secondary, but we'll save it for then. Um, I agree with you that it's the secondary, and I think it at least partially depends on the pass rush. Obviously, and it feels like a very John Madden-esque thing to say. If the pass rush gets there, they'll force him to throw it sooner, and the secondary will have a better, easier time with things. But, you know, that's, you know, call me Captain Obvious. That's just what I have to say about it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, great game by the Texans. I I was so stoked. I'm out there. Luckily, the place we were at didn't get mad at me. I was literally, like, jumping up and down, running across this place just like, the first play of the game, I was I was like, oh, dude, I I surprised they didn't kick me out because I was I was on another level with the playoffs on the line. It was basically a playoff game. I'm like out of my mind every time the Texans do anything. Um, was it, there was that one play where Desmond King come came through and uh, and hit Michael Pitt? I want I want to say it was Michael Pittman. And when I first saw it, I literally like shouted in the bar. I said, oh, so we're not allowed to play football now. Just call it flag football. After the replay, the call made sense, okay? I don't want to act like the refs didn't get right there, but, like, that's where I was at. I was on volume notch turned to 11 the entire game, and my brother-in-law had to deal with that. So thank you, George, for doing that. Um, but, yeah, do you have any final thoughts about this matchup before we go onward and upward to the playoffs? I just want to say this was such a huge game for this franchise. I mean, you could see it in the owner's uh, – Hannah and Cal McNair, I mean, 
you could just dude totally... Hannah McNair is like <laughs> she's, she's she's all of us. <laughs> um, I mean, for the franchise to just go from a three win team to this this fast, I just you know I I love the ambassadors that the Texans have now on both sides of the football. They're just great human beings. Uh, you know, built on faith. Talking, talking hardcore about doing this for the city, saying all the right things. Uh, I'm really excited. I I can't be mad no matter what happens on Saturday uh, at, at the, the level this team has already risen to and what they aspire to get to. I mean, it's, it's just been a phenomenal season. Uh, thank everybody for hanging out with us and, and, and riding with us. I think this has been a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm looking forward to keep doing it. No, yeah, and I, and I said it at the end of our our preview for the Colts Texans matchup. I'm thankful for everyone who is who has listened to this podcast and helped us, you know, get to where we're at now. I've, it's been exciting to talk Texans football this season. It's been a while since we could say that, um, just external to this podcast. Um, and I mean, I I spoke on it before this matchup. The the history between the Texans and the Colts has not been very much in favor of the Texans. So this is huge for C.J. Stroud's legacy. This is huge for the organization. I think there needs to be a study done into like one, like what happened to Hannah McNair that made her change to where she is, and and because it, I, I'm a firm believer that more more times than not, change comes from the top down. And Hannah McNair went from falling asleep at Texans games to like running through the the hallways and stadiums, throwing up the H and like saying "Let's go," like wiping tears from her eyes because like it means that much to her. So, and then from there, going down to D'Amico after the game in the hallway, just like taking it in for a moment and, re- and like, you can tell that he cares. And from the top down, this organization has, has made a 180 and it comes, you know, from that sh- mentality shift, but there needs to be a study done. Like someone needs to just ask Hannah McNair what clicked in her head. Um, I'm convinced that that's where it started. Like there's, I, you know, what that's what it takes for a man to change things. So, you know, Cal... You know, that's what it took was for Hannah to say something. And all of a sudden, the Texans hired D'Amico, draft C.J. Stroud, and just they go, we're going we're to bring good football back to Houston. So, I, you know, I thought that people that talked like that on Twitter were crazy for being like, Hannah McNair saved this franchise. But the more I watch it and the more I see things, I'm thinking like, you know, thanks, Hannah, for everything you've done for this Texans team. We appreciate it. From the the bullpen is officially a Hannah McNair stand podcast. So the thirty official. for thirty I, I, is going to be amazing. You know? Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. So no, yeah, I'm super stoked, excited. There's there's not words in the English language to describe how how I'm feeling right now going into these playoffs because like there's just this deeper part of me that's like the Texans can win and and face and beat anyone. And then there's like the reasonable, logical part of me that's like the Texans are coming in kind of, you know, the way they're entering. Maybe I don't want to get my hopes up, but like at the same time, I'm like, I, I know this team can, can do something here. And I'm, I'm just excited to be along for the ride. So thanks for listening to the bullpen today. Um, yeah. Uh, tune in on Friday. Like I said, we're going to talk about the Browns. Uh, Browns Texans wild card matchup, and then uh, if you want to find me on social media, I am at M1 Texans fan, and that's also how you can find the podcast on YouTube. If you're listening on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and if you're watching on YouTube, you can listen on Apple and Spotify podcasts to the bullpen. Tom is Third Coast Tom on uh, Twitter, 
he does not refer to it as X because that is for the, the youngins and Tom is not that. So <laughs> I fake um, it. I fake it. I'm not that though. No, Tom's young at heart. So, uh, and yeah, thanks for listening until next time. Stay, stay classy, Houston. And, uh, vamos Texas. Thanks for tuning into the bullpen, a Texans podcast, part of the fans first sports network. Please like, comment, subscribe, and follow along for more Texans talk from the bullpen. Pick the hand up. Stroud. Looking. Stroud.